Well, welcome back to part two of the discussion on the images of Jesus. We had a good discussion a couple weeks ago as we began this discussion. Uh, and I have a few follow-up points um, that I would like to start this evening with. I'd like to remind you why we're talking about this. First of all, the question is, can we uh, worship in a space that has images of Jesus? Is that consistent with, um, the, with how God has commanded us in Scripture to worship Him? That's, that's really the question. Um, what we are talking about in this study, or in this, this two-part study, is the view of the church. But it's not something that is policed in the home. And so I, I want to make sure you understand, um, we don't send the ruling elders on secret missions to peek into your windows and see what books you are reading to your children. Um, this is, uh, as, as far as the, the session of Christ Presbyterian Church has the ability uh, to control what is done in the proceedings of the church, they're going to do that. And that includes our Sunday school curriculum will not have pictures of kids in it when we get, or excuse me, <laughs> pictures of... <laughs> Our Sunday school curriculum for, for kids uh, or adults will not have pictures of Jesus in the curriculum. Um, our worship space will not have images of Jesus. And the pastoral um, encouragement that you receive will encourage you not to use images. But, but that is, um, we're not going to bring charges against you if you end up disagreeing or if your life... If, if you decide to do things differently, um, and if you are showing your children or grandchildren um, story Bibles with pictures of Jesus in them, you're not going to bring charges against you for that. Uh, last week, or two weeks ago, I'm going to say last week in reference to two weeks ago, but um, the, the question of Christian freedom came up. What about Christian freedom? Can we, don't we have freedom in Christ to do um, what we will? I think it's important to note that the Christian freedom debate, and Kevin really hit this on the head in, in his answer as he was um, talking about it. He said, Christian freedom is to protect us from other people's, from man-made rules uh, that violate Scripture. Uh, and so we, we can't regulate one another with things that the Bible does not require. The Bible is clear on worship, um, Specifically, the we'll get to the regulative principle, but um, let me give you an example. If if we decided to leave those windows uncovered, that would actually be restricting other Christians' freedom because they find that Scripture disallows the use of images in worship. And so, worship uh, we are actually protecting Christians' freedom um, by not doing things that Scripture does not command. Um, so if, you know, if I started doing a dance routine before every sermon, that would have negative effects in lots of ways. Um, but it would be an offense specifically to, uh, believers whose consciences don't think that a proper part of corporate worship is dance. Some might even say, oh, well, you know, David danced and, and you can see that dance has happened as a part of worship, but it's not commanded. And so what we do is we restrict ourselves by the regulative principle to things that have been commanded in order not to bind the conscience of Christians who think that something might be um, unbiblical or against God's clear commands. 
And so then the regulative principle, which says that we worship according to God's commands alone, protects the whole congregation's conscience from being violated from, by a human-designed piece of the service. If we were to bring in a human design, that may offend many. It may offend some. And so if we then restrict ourselves to what God has commanded, that can offend consciences because that is God's command. And so we let ourselves do specifically what God has commanded. And that's kind of the heart behind uh, the regulative principle, uh, specifically as it relates to uh, images and worship. <clears throat> One more comment has to do with art, because I know there are some here who know and love art. And I need to say clearly that um, I do not believe the second commandment speaks about art. The second commandment is written in, uh, excuse me, non-worship related art, art as an endeavor. Uh, I, I do not believe it's speaking about that. I do not believe the second commandment prohibits the use of artistic representations of things on earth. It was given in the context of how man relates to God, and it speaks then to man's attempted depiction of the true invisible God according to things in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Uh, and so, um, as we said so pithily last time, uh, to um, ponder a bird and draw a bird is not the problem. To ponder God and draw a bird is the problem. So we believe that these commands are related specifically to how we engage with our God. And so art as an endeavor is good and can give glory to God in its proper place. Um, but art has not been a commandment of God and how worship is to be conducted. So therefore, it is not a part of our specific worship services. Those are some wrap-up thoughts um, that may have opened many, many more cans of worms, but can I limit it to one or two comments now uh, in response before we jump into this article because we get to get through, get through this whole thing today. <clears throat> yes. Yes. I'm going to reiterate that for the sake of the microphone. The question is, can, does art then that depicts Christ in a non-worship-related manner, uh, is that okay? Um, I think the argument is going to be that that cannot happen because an image of Christ itself must be worshipful. worshipful. Yeah. That's what I thought yeah. your answer was, but I just want to make yeah. sure my yeah. 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 So there's a picture of Jesus right outside the window. Right. So that's in the category, not of art, but of... Worship. We will get to that. I didn't even know it was there. Yeah, it was right, right. And therein lies one of the challenges that we specifically face as a congregation that uses somebody else's space. Um, that would not remain should this become our building. Yes? This is how the elders of Christ Presbyterian Church understand the constitution of our church. Okay. And does it go beyond that? I mean, is this, is this something that is true for all PCA churches? Or? Yes. Yeah, I don't know a single person in the PCA who would argue for the use of images of Jesus in their worship space. 
there is discussion on whether or not pedagogy is different, even among PCA folks. But as the session of Christ Pres understands it, there is that is not up for. They understand our Constitution to say say clearly that even the use of of such images outside of worship would, would be um, unhelpful in the least, or at at least. There's obviously uh, considerable disagreement on this topic, um, and which fair-minded people can. I mean, you can just go to the Sistine Chapel, mm-hmm. right? Look at the, mm-hmm. Right, and mm-hmm. this, you've got you've got uh, God depicted as mm-hmm. creating Adam out of mm-hmm. the dust, and mm-hmm. so obviously, like, I'm not saying we we follow the Catholic. Last comment here. Pedagogy is for teaching. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump in here. We looked at all the scripture passages on that first page last time. We got into the confessional perspectives a little bit. I would like to in- emphasize a few phrases here under the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 109. This is the fullest um, at, approach to explaining the fullest explanation of how the second commandment relates to worship. And it's this. What sins are forbidden in the second commandment? Answer, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. It includes the making of any representation of God, of all, or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. All worshiping of it, or God in it or by it. The making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them, or service belonging to them. And... I'd like to emphasize at this point, these next few lines may feel especially relevant. All superstitious devices corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, 
hindering and opposing the worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. So that is uh, the the question that typically um, gets that, that that theologians dive into, pastors dive into when this topic comes up. I think especially relevant for us is the question of received tradition. Even if it's under the title of antiquity, say, well, it's just been this way, it's just been custom, or we do it out of devotion to God, or we have good intentions behind it, any other pretense whatsoever. Uh, those are None of those then would provide a proper excuse for the use of images. There are two relatively prominent churches in the PCA right now that do have images of Jesus in the sanctuary. One is actively in pursuit of removing it. The other is, seems to be close behind. I mentioned one of them last time, uh, and that's the one that seems to be close behind in, in removing those stained glass images because they've received these buildings from other denominations, and uh, they, you can just say, well, it's been here, so we can just you know take it as it is, but that's the very argument that has led us to not just take the sanctuary as it is, but to be willing to install curtains because we think that this is um, proper, and, and this is, as, as God is... F- fervently zealous for his own worship, we should be too, to worship as he has intended. And it seems um, pretty clear from various parts in Scripture, as we discussed last time, that um, God very intentionally did not use images to show who he was throughout Scripture and specifically um, spoke against such images. And you can continue to read uh, more on the Second Commandment in the Shorter Catechism as well and in the Heidelberg Catechism. But the Heidelberg, just a note, is not a part of our um, PCA um, constitution. Let's jump into why not images of God. And then we'll specifically look at why not images of Jesus. Uh, so why not images of God? <clears throat> First, uh, this this one this section is hopefully going to be a little bit of a softball. I think that there aren't many people here who would say, yeah, we should try to represent God with certain um, visible att- attributes or aspects in a worship space. Very few, I don't know anybody who would say that we should because God is invisible and spiritual, and thus images of him simply cannot capture his majestic glory. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Second point, uh, images debase and dishonor God, and they thereby lessen our esteem for him, and they create false thoughts about him. I think this, this point right here is significantly underplayed. I don't think people take seriously enough the fact that when you do try to depict God or Jesus, you are massively downplaying who he is, and it creates false images about who he is. And many will quickly go to the race discussion. What I mean, Jesus has been depicted as white with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, that, that does, in, in many senses, um, it, it creates, creates false thoughts about who Jesus was. Um, the third reason why we're not going to... I'm sorry, I, I jumped already to, to Jesus. Let's, let, me, let me try to stick back with images of God. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah, yeah, okay. I've not seen that, but yes. Um, number three there is no biblical command to make such an image there's there's nowhere where scripture positively authorizes uh making an image of god and and so there is just a quick um summary of the regulative principle 
Yes. On the God side. So um, at end of life, often the attempt to console people is pictured through scenes like a sun in the clouds or sunset or something. And their attempt is to picture God in that kind of way. Is that a bit of what this is talking about? There's no specific image, but the idea, the thoughts in the mind statement, is that you will see God in a pleasant way when you look at this picture. That is... That's interesting. I, I don't necessarily specifically so tightly tie God to such an image. I, I, in my mind, I see that as a, an encouragement. Uh, it is representing the fact that as we die, we pass into glory. Uh, are you saying that it's specifically trying to show God's... I don't know what they're trying to show. They're okay. used by pagans, so they're not mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. everybody's going to heaven now, you know. Right, right. So they're trying to paint this picture of this yeah. is your next step. And yeah. like something peaceful and comforting. But if the yeah. idea is yeah. God or heaven, whatever they're trying to get at, is in an image of some sort of calm. Interesting. I think it's okay to try to depict heaven in that way and to give peace. Uh, that, to me, does not seem to be such an egregious breaking of the second commandment because it's not trying to show God himself. Um, so that's my, my initial, my gut reaction to, to a question like that. And, and if it is trying to depict God himself, then I'd say, well, it has massively failed mm-hmm. and it is very problematic because God is not a ray of light in a cloud. Just trying to get my head around this concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have more questions for later, but that's the initial. Sure, one. sure. Okay, well, keep them coming. Number four, the human heart is prone to idolatry. Therefore, people will tend to use for worship images unintended for worship. So the intent of the creation of a peace does not necessarily justify, it doesn't excuse or can condemn the art. Our hearts are going to turn anything, images of God or images of anything, right? Because our, our hearts are idol factories, as, as Calvin said. So um, it doesn't have to necessarily be an image of God for us to idolize it and to misuse it. It could be an image of anything, but especially an image attempting to depict God is going to tend that way in our hearts. And that, that's point four there. Uh, point five, the, uses, the use of images is the, theologically connected. Now, this, is, this comes from a theologian far uh, smarter than I am. It says, the use of images is theologically connected with the sinful human desire to control God and to use him for our own purposes, such that we fail to acknowledge his sovereignty. So basically, this point is saying that if you try to capture God in an image, you are reducing God down to something that is manageable and useful to you. And that then diminishes his power and sovereignty. Number six, the use of images of God is an implicit rejection of the sufficiency of God's verbal revelation and its proclamation. This is saying, well, God's word is not sufficient. We must use pictures in order to really worship God or to really get to who he is or to truly understand him. It would uh, implicitly say uh, that God's word is not enough. And then number seven is not uh, an argument. This is just uh, just a historical point to say images were absent in early Christianity, images of this kind. This, this became really not a discussion until about the 800s. And maybe there were other discussions earlier, but that was really the first documented uh, question about images. And by 800, they had become uh, used. And so the um, iconoclasts, we start to find their, their writings in the 800s, and those arguments were repeated later in the 12, 13, 1400s. 
Uh, and so, yes, but early on, this was not, it doesn't seem to be prolific in the early church. Do you have further insight into that? No, I just, uh, having traveled a bit, there are worship of icons, especially in Eastern Orthodox churches and stuff, where they have like a finger of a saint or something. Yeah, relics. Mm-hmm. Relics and stuff like that, which I found, I always found troubling if they're going to, Seems almost like a good luck charm. Right. Yeah, there's the superstition, I think, yeah, that's coming in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and last time we, we talked about how the Eastern Church understands the Second Commandment differently than the Western Church, which is why in the Eastern Church you will only find two-dimensional depictions of, of Christ and saints. It's because they think that the Second Commandment specifically relates to three-dimensional graven images. Graven as in depth to it, as opposed to a 2D in uh, the, the Western Church uh, understands it to be three-dimensional, but not a problem in certain contexts. Whereas the Eastern Church draws a line at two dimensions. Or, yeah, draws a line at three dimensions. You can't cross into three dimensions. So here's the common theme in these first six arguments. It is a concern about usurping the divine prerogatives. God's nature is spiritual and invisible, unknowable to the world apart from his own sovereign revelation of himself. I think this is really important for us to realize God revealed himself progressively throughout scripture, throughout history. And so uh, as we, the only way we can know him and who he is, is by his revealed word. And so we let that be the driving force um, and the sole um, communication. uh, We let that, I'll, I'll put it this way. We let that be the driving force behind our relationship to him and how we conceive of him because we cannot on our own. We can't of our own devices think up of who God is. We've seen how other religions have tried to create who God is in their minds and ended up in so many uh, problematic, um, heretical, non-Christian doctrines. You got a comment? Um, am I correct in understanding that the Bible kind of tells us that even in the New Kingdom, we won't see the Father I heard a nod over here. I think that's right. Say again? I think you like I'm not, yeah, Stephen paraphrasing bits and pieces of revelation. Yeah. So, by nature of who God is, he does not have physical parts that we can, with eyeballs, perceive. We will see him in a spiritual sense of knowing. But there is there's this real fact that God is a spirit. And that physical eyes cannot see that kind of spirit in itself. Um, and so, yes, we will see Jesus in his glory. And we will see the glory of the Father, however he chooses to manifest it to us. Um, but I, there is, yeah, there's a real sense in which his spiritual being, we need to understand um, the implications. And of course, I don't understand the implications of the fact that God is a spirit. But um, yeah, I think, I think that's a helpful point. Have I been among you all this time? You don't know me, Philip. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Yeah, that's good. That's Romans 14. Jacob, if I may, this is Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in it for the Lord. Now this is Lord, lowercase. So that's Adonai. The Lord God saw the Almighty, um, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Mm. And that's Revelation 20, God initiates and defines his relationship with human beings, but we sinful humans, we like to initiate our relationship to God. You know, that's where a lot of bad theology comes from. It's where a lot of bad religions come from. It's us earning our way into God's presence and creating him in our own image. And... Um, and they want to deal with God on their own terms and in their own way and at their own time rather than adhering steadfastly to his revelation alone. And so that would inevitably, of course, distort their perception of God and destroy uh, such a relationship with him if they do not even understand who he is and how he's revealed himself. So that's, that's our goal is we want to stick as closely as we can to how God has clearly revealed himself in his word. So um, that's why we don't try to create images of God himself. Now the question then is, well, God <coughs> made himself visible. Right? So, so Jesus came, and that's why Jesus uh, gets a, his own special set of points here. Um, because God did choose to make himself visible in, as Deanna read, in Jesus, the person of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, let's go ahead and just jump in because I could... Uh, I could, of course, belabor all along the way here. First of all, all images of Jesus are inaccurate because of ignorance. Images of Jesus created by artists are products of their imagination and must then function as a species of will worship, meaning, um, well, by implication, where that plays out in the fact that many make him into whatever ethnicity they personally are. And so then we start to worship who we will Jesus to be uh, and how we depict him. Number two, the reality of two natures indwelling Jesus. This, I think number two here is, uh, I've, I've not heard it in a discussion before, which makes me think this is probably an entirely under, uh, underplayed, it's a downplayed point. I think point two here is very rich. The reality of the two natures indwelling Jesus, the, his human nature and his divine nature, it makes any encounter with his person necessarily worship-evoking. Do you capture that? Because when you see Jesus, you see the person of, of God, uh, the second person of God. You see the, the, the human and the divine nature. Um, can you see the divine nature? That's, that's the next level of the discussion here. Um, but when you're encountering then this, this Jesus with two natures, it is necessarily worship evoking. If a picture of his humanity intends to deny his divinity, saying it's just, or I'm just drawing his, his human nature, that is inherently heretical because you, Jesus is not just a human nature. Um, and if, it is, if his divine, divinity is implied in that, then worship of that must follow. We're kind of stuck then when we look at an image of Jesus. Say, well, it wasn't intended that it's his human and divine natures. We're just intending to depict his humanity. That's problematic. It's bad theology. It's, it is heretical. 
you're dividing the natures of Christ. And if somebody says, well, I am trying to divide his, or I'm trying to depict both his human and his divine natures, but you're not supposed to worship it. How in the world are you supposed to encounter the eternal God and not worship? So it puts us in uh, a really difficult uh, situation. We remember, we must remember this is point A under number two. Um, I think that's on your handout. It may not be. It is. Okay, great. Uh, We must remember that Jesus' human nature reveals the divine and that the purpose of teaching about Jesus' human nature and human action is to present God himself to the learners. Number three, a person faced with a picture of Christ, this is uh, what I was just implying, faces an impossible dilemma. If he worships it, he overtly violates the second commandment. If he doesn't worship it and treats it like any other picture, then making the picture is in vain or even wrongs Christ, for it is a Christ that is not worshipped. Number four, the word and sacraments are sufficient. And this was implied as we uh, read earlier uh, in the images of God. The word preached, the word read, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are sufficient for how we engage with our God because we believe these are specifically ordained ways, means of grace by which God blesses us and engages with us in his covenant relationship with his people. And so we should be content with God's choice of revelation. Preaching is a special is, is a means of grace whereby God blesses his elect to encounter the truth. The sacraments have been set apart as special elements of worship that are also means of grace. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper, now here, this is uh, going to create an interesting um, discussion, no doubt, but the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with the visible and physical means instituted by Christ himself, right, did, did you get that? When we take the Lord's Supper, we are seeing the body, or the, the bread and the wine, right? Um, these are instituted by Christ himself, and they leave any other attempts of representing him as meager at best, because he has not ordained or set apart any other means of engaging with him. Word, sacrament, which includes the bread and the cup. I'm going to pause there because I have no doubt that there are questions and thoughts. So I would argue with point two in that I know it's when you tended to lie, so I hate to be argumentative, but... I would say that the apostles, when they saw Christ in the flesh, did not also see the Holy Spirit or the Father. So this, it, you know, whether it's a picture or a live, that, the concept of number two would apply to a picture or the apostles seeing Christ in the flesh. Well, same point. Mm-hmm. Same point. That's the problem with the picture, right? As well. Mm-hmm. You're not, they didn't clearly see Father or the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Literally, they did. <laughs> right. As far as the Trinity. Right. But in there, they didn't Yeah. Yeah, and I think. I buy the other points more, I guess. Sure. Sure. I, yeah, but I guess the, the point is made then that much of these things that we talk about as a church are irrelevant to those who are perishing. Um, and so if somebody is an unbeliever and they look at a picture of Jesus, it probably does nothing without the Spirit's. Um, you know, whether either conviction of its idolatry or um, or whatever the response, proper response might be. Yeah. I mean, I think the fear here, I, you know, is, but I, you said earlier, making rules, right? It's, it's the, it's, mm-hmm. you know, the Pharisees have whatever, 168 rules, and the point here is that, oh, we need to make more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and do better than them. They didn't have enough rules. I think it's more of, you know, the Sermon on the Mount that, 
you're angry at your brother. You know, it, it, Jesus took the Ten Commandments to the next level. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's more more of the issue. Mm -hmm. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's for all of us to realize we, we can't keep the second commandment. I think we tend to mm -hmm. look at it and mm -hmm. say, oh yeah, I keep that one. You know, mm -hmm. I don't like idols. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, as a kid, like, oh, got that one covered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's like, yeah. but we don't have that one. Yeah, no, I, I we don't. It, our, yeah. our human nature, it, it points out that, you know, what Paul talks about all the time in Romans of, of we can't follow mm -hmm. the law. Mm -hmm. It is not even possible. Right. You know, without Christ. I mean, yeah. that is the point. It is, some, it is unattainable. So we mm -hmm. can't mm -hmm. do any of them, including mm -hmm. this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, we cover them up with curtains or not. Right. We're still, or not. Yeah. That, We're going that, to need it. Right. And I think that's a very helpful reminder. The fact that uh, we have all broken the second commandment because we have in our sinfulness and in our... In our humanity failed to worship God as he has commanded and, and viewed him in the way that he ought to be viewed. Which shows us then, well, are we hopeless? No, Christ has done the second commandment perfectly for us. It can, can you imagine being the word who became flesh and not idolizing, if you will, yourself? Um, Back it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I guess uh, the the response would be just because you can't keep the commandment doesn't mean you don't try, and exactly. and we don't and and yes the the fear of course that people look at this and say oh well you have created a new type of Phariseeism that just set up uh, you know here here's the heart of the of the law and you've set up all these commandments around it to prevent you from breaking that the heart of that law, um, and and my response to that is. Thankfully, we don't have those hundreds of laws that the Pharisees had set up, and we have torn those down. We are trying to understand what Christ has done, and we're not trying to be saved by this law-keeping. We're trying to live faithfully um, to obey this command, how we understand it in Scripture. John. Can you differentiate obstruction the from protection? The Pharisee rules kept people. Mm. I, I I agree. Yeah. I do wonder if the Pharisees would have said the same about their rules. I, I think they probably would have. Um, yeah, yeah. And if, you know, not so large a step between prescribing no images of God in worship and prescribing uh, no television in your house. Mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm making a little bit silly of a description, but uh, the tendency, I think, within uh, ourselves, not even just anyone to 
Um, and it goes both ways. You find people following rabbit trail down to like, I can extend grace as far as one. And you have other people going, I can make all of these self-protective rules and if it's good for me, it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's helpful. These are, there's, there's a lot of conscience conviction in this. And, and I'm not going to walk into your house and say, you need to take that down. Um, you need to replace this book with that one. Um, this is, the hope here is that we're not binding your conscience, but presenting what, what we believe Scripture says about this. And then it's the Spirit's work and, and your participation to apply this as appropriate and to apply this where um, where is best. Um, over worship itself, the elders have authority. And, and in joining in membership, you have submitted yourself to that authority over how worship is conducted, and so the images will be covered in worship. Um, and, and so I, I think you bring up a helpful point um, that the conscience is important in this. And uh, if, if I, uh, I, I hope that I've not given the impression, you know, before we, you know, jump into this discussion that I'm sitting here, like, looking at you with a, I don't know what's, I don't know the expression, looking at you with contempt saying, I can't, you probably have that kind of book at home. I, your, your bumper sticker or, oh, I saw, I saw your bookmark in your Bible. Um, that's, that's not my job. That's not my job. And you're not going to hear me trying to beat these, these rules down your throat. My job is to present what I believe is biblical and to let the Holy Spirit do the rest and to let you be an active participant in whatever the Lord leads you to do by this by this. So that's, um, that's where, that's the goal. We're not going to cover the objections um, as much as I would like to. I would like to do two things for you. I would like to give you a definition. Uh, under the fourth objection, uh, it says, well, if you don't have any images of Jesus in your kids' books, I go, look, there are the 12 disciples with no leader. Um, the argument is, well, that could teach the docetic theology to our children. Docetic, let me define that for you. It means that Jesus only seemed to be human. He wasn't actually a human, right? So that's one of the objections. Well, you're just teaching that he was a spirit who looked to be human, but never actually became human because you're removing, removing, removing the visibility of his humanity from children. Um, now the response there uh, responds with uh, the word Nestorian. Um, the Nestorian implications in argument two, which um, Bob brought up just a minute ago, is uh, another heresy that separates the two persons of Christ. Um, so uh, basically says um, they were he was not um, two natures in one person, but uh, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, I believe Nestorianism says he was two persons, uh, which then does not actually truly combine the divine and human uh, into the person of Christ. Combine is not even the right word. Um, and then I, I would like us to look at those six points at the bottom, the positive virtuous instruction from following the second commandment. Our goal as we move into the sanctuary and to cover up the windows is the full surrender of ourself to the service of God in all things, with all things, and at all times. And that includes, for us, curtains on the wall. It's not the only thing it includes. I, I hope you've noticed that about the way our worship services go. 
Um, this is not the only thing that we're trying to, you know, just be difficult about. We want the full surrender of ourselves to the service of God in all things, with all things, and at all times. Uh, point two, we want to serve God according to His will. That is, that our entire conduct would be governed by the will of God as revealed to us in His Word. Third, uh, serving God with the soul, that is, with the spirit in a spiritual manner and with the intellect, will, and affections. So that's part of why we have engaged in this discussion in your presence here is proof that number three does matter to you. Number four, serving God with a perfect heart, that is, without a divided heart, having and seeking something in addition to God. It's saying we should not have and seek something in addition to God. We don't want that divided heart where we must have the beautiful cathedral with the gorgeous stained glass windows and pictures of Jesus in order to worship. We worship him for who he is as he's revealed himself in Scripture. We could worship in a cafeteria. And, and so we're not trying to have a divided heart about um, how we are able then to worship. Number five, serving God with a joyful zeal. That is, uh, it, this, it must not be a burden, but a delight. So when we go into worship, it should be a delight, and we should rejoice in the fact that God as yet wishes to be served by us. And it's a great privilege to do what God commands. And then lastly, number six, we oppose false religion, and we eradicate idols and images according to our own station. Um, and these, as you can see from the footnotes, came from uh, Abrakel on his comments on uh, the second commandment. Um, we got in, I'm just going to have to stop there. We didn't get into everything. That last point under why not images of Jesus is a, a point unique to David Van Drunen that I find really intriguing and really compelling. Um, it's the fact that we worship by faith and not by sight in these days. And so we move into the sanctuary um, and long to see him face to face. And we look forward to that. And we will. But today's not that day. Uh, and so that's, that's some of the mindset behind this as well. Um, I will go ahead and pray for us. And then if there are any further questions, I will stay back. So I'll, I'll be here for the next couple hours. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, gracious God, for your word, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and that in your word we find a revelation that you have decided to give to us, that we might know you and draw near to you and worship you. We pray that we would be faithful in that. And I pray that this discussion does not uh, drive any into anger or frustration. I pray that... Um, there would be clear communication if questions remain. If our, um, if our hearts are wrinkled over this one, would you, by your Spirit, help to comfort and to provide answers? Would we be students of your Word by the strength of your Spirit, first and foremost? And I pray that as we move into the sanctuary, you would bless our efforts to worship you according to your Word. We thank you uh, that... As was mentioned tonight, um, even in our inability to keep the, the second commandment fully, we have a perfect one who has done it for us. And it's in him and it's for him that we worship. And so we praise as we encounter the truth of what he's done to us, done for us uh, every week. Uh, we pray that we would respond in praise. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our forgiveness. We thank you for the hope we have in him. We thank you for this community of saints. And pray that we would not neglect 
the blessing that it is to gather together, that we would do so diligently, especially all the more as we see that final day drawing near. We look forward to that day. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we wish to see the glory of God. We wish to see our Savior face to face, and we trust that we will one day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.